you know, it's their story. They were not going to be cowed. They were going to tell it like it happened. And that was, I mean, it's just so, so brave. I was just, just astonished. One other thing, I guess, is how modest they, they were about what they had done. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Beverly Weintraub is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and instrument-rated private pilot. As an editorial writer for the New York Daily News, she covered topics including education, social services, and aviation. She shared the 2007 Pulitzer for editorial writing for an in-depth investigation into the illnesses afflicting World Trade Center rescue and recovery workers after 9-11. Her debut book, Wings of Gold, the story of the first women naval aviators, is a meticulous and often infuriating chronicle of the obstacles faced by the first six women to earn their naval aviation wings. Today we talk about their journey as pioneers in history. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to The Forge, where we talk about doing hard things. And today is no exception as we discuss female pioneers in naval aviation. Six women who forged the path for the women who followed. Bev, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Before we, I mean, beyond what I've, I've already shared in the intro, give the listeners a little bit of synopsis of what this book, Wings of Gold, is all about. So it's about an experiment by the military that actually shouldn't have been an experiment at all. In 1972... The Navy desperately needed people. Um, It seemed that the military was going to have to start attracting volunteers. The Equal Rights Amendment was going to be ratified, which it has not. And all these restrictions that were placed on women serving in the Navy specifically in 1948 under federal law were suddenly seen as a big problem. Um, so the solution that Admiral Elmo Zumwalt came up with was to open many of the jobs that were closed to women up to women, expand the pool of talent, remove the restrictions that would cause a constitutional problem for the Navy in theory, and replace many of the men who just were not interested in serving in the Navy. So they opened a number of jobs, including flight training to women, recruited what ended up being eight officer or officer trainees. Well, four officer or officer trainees and four civilians for Navy flight training, which is extraordinarily difficult. The requirements for naval aviators, you know, was a point of pride. Is much they have to do much more difficult flying than many other military pilots do. And this was really an experiment to see just what would happen if they found eight women, two dropped out, so it ended up being six women, throw them into military flight training in Pensacola and just kind of see what happens. The basic questions, do women have upper body strength? Do they have the temperament? Can they fly 
military aircraft, you know, were proven by the WASP who flew for the army during World War II to great success. But their service records were sealed after the war. Nobody really knew about them anymore until the 70s when the service academies started opening to women. And the Air Force Academy was saying, we have the first women flying for the military. And these grandmas looked around and said, wait a minute, what about us? <laughs> and they had, you know, proven that women could certainly do this job. But, you know, though over the decades, those lessons kind of were forgotten. So when the Navy came up with this idea, we're going to put women in flight training, it was like this revolutionary experiment. And it was treated as such. It was suspended after six months. These six women, you know, were graded and, you know, everything they did was scrutinized. And then the Navy stopped the program and reevaluated it. You know, should they continue having women flying planes and ultimately decided that, yes, it's worked out pretty well, but it really shouldn't have been a surprise. And it really did come across as a surprise to an awful lot of people. And the fact that it's somewhat normalized now that, you know, the first woman to command an aviation squadron, you know, didn't happen until 1990. It just seems head scratching now. But, you know, it, it was revolutionary. And these women were absolute trailblazers and faced huge resistance and pushback, did it pretty much alone because they were all separated from one another. They were not grouped together ever. And, you know, their individual stories were absolutely amazing. The courage and the perseverance they displayed was astonishing. The measures they took to get their Navy officers who maybe didn't want to go along to get them to do the right thing through channels and working around the proper channels to make sure that they had the opportunity that they had been promised are just amazing. And it's really a parallel story about changes in American society, changes in the military more broadly, and just what it takes to change the culture of an ingrained organization that's done things one way for hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden they're told, nope, you've got to accommodate these other people that you never considered before. Yeah, I tell you, I, I highlighted a, a passage that I think sums up what you're saying right here. You said in the book, the first six shared mental toughness, fortitude, and determination to stand up against pushback. And I think you kind of emphasized that that was needed, right? If if they weren't going to be mentally tough, they probably would have just quit. And uh, I think that the military, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the military were kind of thinking that they were going to quit, right? Is that kind of the sentiment I got? I think it was really an open question in the minds of some up the chain of command. I think a lot of them thought that they weren't going to make it through flight training. I think they were shocked that they got into flight training in the first place. There was no plan for how to accommodate women at a billet that like didn't even have ladies rooms. And then if they wanted a second billet after that one, how are they going to get integrated into the regular procedure for, you know, picking an assignment and earning what you need to earn for promotions. None of that had been considered even, you know, do you have flight suits of the proper size? Do you have helmets of the proper size? None of that. Yeah, can you imagine? And, and you know, everybody that's watching on YouTube obviously knows I'm a white male <laughs> living in the United States, so it's very hard for me to even wrap my head around this, but... Can you imagine all you white men out there if you went somewhere where they didn't even have uniforms that fit you? There was nothing designed for you. Boy, talk about feeling like you didn't belong. That that would be a little crazy to to kind of, I don't know, absorb. 
and you know some of the crazy stuff that comes out of there there was there was one that I, I i read that you know they were doing interviews with these female aviators and one of the reporters said do you mind posing in a bikini and i'm like what in the world <laughs> and i think the response from that young lady was would you ask one of the men to do this yeah and and so what is you posing in a bikini have to do with flying an airplane but like you said, this is a culture, for better or worse, that they had to kind of fight against. Right. And if you look at all the coverage in the early 70s, because these women were such a novelty and of such great interest, every major newspaper in the country covered every step of the recruitment process and the announcements and when they had to go for their, you know, their physicals and then they were going through the physical training, you know, at Pensacola and what they were doing on the obstacle course. And then when they did their first solo and when, you know, heaven forbid, they let a woman fly a jet, you know, this was got massive coverage. And the tone of all these stories, it's all about their physical appearance. What did the men in their lives think about this? One New York Times story said that they'd be allowed to carry makeup in their flight suits. <laughs> it was just a real, you know, that kind of view of what women should be doing and how you think about a woman who's trying to do something that women are not supposed to do. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to kind of just put this in, in context. We kind of laugh about this. We're both you and I are laughing about this is ludicrous, but in the seventies that, that wasn't, that wasn't too crazy, right. To, to treat women that way. And so uh, let's just say we're making progress. I think we still have plenty of work to do, but at least we can laugh at it now. I don't think in the seventies it was, you know, again, that wasn't, that wasn't that crazy, you know, and they had such, I don't know, weird restrictions that they had to kind of work around. Like I remember reading about one of the helicopter pilots that she couldn't even land on a combat ship, even though the, the ship wasn't in combat, it was designated as a combat ship. Not only could she not land on it because that was against the regulations, she couldn't even hover over it and drop mail. And I'm like, what in the world? I, I get it. You know, the military and the government has some weird regulations. But can you imagine trying to do your job with those kind of restrictions? So that was crazy well, to me. Well, she, she couldn't do her job. And yeah. she couldn't get the flight time she needed for promotion. And, you know, the military spent an awful lot of money training her how to be a helo pilot. And now she can't do the job that the public paid for you know it just made no sense she ended up a plaintiff in a federal class action lawsuit along with two other officers and four enlisted women to try to get those regulations changed because that that was in federal law that women could not be on any vessel that had a combat mission and the mission part meant that well this might be in combat at some point and we can't have a woman there just in case it happens so no women I can only imagine how frustrating that was for her. Yeah. How did this, Bev, you know, how did this book come to be? Is this some, was this a passion project for you? Did somebody approach you? How did that, how did you get involved with this? Yeah, well, this story found me. It happened completely backwards and it's still a little bit mind boggling to me. I'm a journalist. I've spent 24 years at the New York Daily News. I'm also a pilot, a private pilot instrument rated. Mm -hmm. And a former colleague of mine from the Daily News works at the opinion section of the Washington Post. So a couple of times when something has happened about women and airplanes in the news, I get an email, hey, would you write something? So I've written a couple pieces for the Post about women and, and aviation. 
And in 2019, Captain Rosemary Mariner, who was the most prominent of those original six pioneer female naval aviators, she passed away of cancer. And the Navy did its first all-woman missing man formation flyover at her funeral. This made huge headlines. And I got an email from my former colleague, would you write something? So I did. And then a couple months later, I got an email from an editor at Lions Press who had seen the piece and said she thought it might make for an interesting book. What did I think? So for a publisher to approach an author and an unknown author, you know, I'd written many op-eds and, you know, some published essays, but never, never written a book before. You know, it was pretty amazing. So that that started the wheels in motion. And then I mean, again, was this something as you did research, you go, wow, this this is something I want to do? Yeah. Did absolutely. it kind of grow on you? No, I mean, I, I mean, I love stories about aviation. You know, of course, I'm a pilot. I'm airplane crazy, you know, like every other pilot is. And, you know, these unknown pieces of history, you know, it quickly became apparent, you know, that this was a piece of history that had been forgotten and that these stories needed to be told. And the more I dug into it, the more amazing the individual stories were. And, you know, as I said, they got huge press at the time. So, you know, the, the newspapers the kind of, it were all over their stories. And then for them to just completely to have dropped off the radar, you know, this needs to be reclaimed. And I, yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad you did, because I can be honest, I'm a pilot, too. And as I was reading through your book, I'm like, I didn't know. I didn't know this. And so it was it was pretty fascinating for me to read through it. And what a great I mean, it's just a great chunk of history, right? Yeah, absolutely. What? um you know, as you went through it, what was the message you were trying to send? I mean, is this is this something like I want little girls to be able to to know this story so that they know that they can go out and do it? Was it more than that? Is that part of it? I mean, can you tell me more about what that passion was? I mean, it's certainly part of it. It's certainly a message to trailblazers in aviation and in other fields who are still facing pushback to some degree or other, some women in the military are still having to deal with, you know, some of these issues. Many are not, but some do. And, you know, there's something to understanding that you're not the first one, you're not the only one, that people have had to deal with these same kinds of setbacks, and they have. So here's a lesson in perseverance. It's not just, you're you're not alone in this. The other thing that was fascinating to me was the historical thread, you know, for all the pushback and all the, um, the slow walking of orders and the excuses for not being able to put a bathroom on a ship so we can't have women on a ship because we can't find a place to put a bathroom. There were many men, you know, up and down the chain who thought that, you know, women needed to have these opportunities because why would you deny yourself, you know, a potential of half the population? You can have the best pilots you can find and you're you're shutting out half of the population. It makes no sense. In Captain Mariner's case, her first CO was the first black aviation CO in the Navy. And he had the history of the black officers who had integrated the military. And he pulled out all that paperwork for her and sat her down and explained to her how they had networked and watched each other's back and documented. And he said, this is what you women need to do. And he set out a roadmap for how the women needed to proceed. He also modeled a type of respect and leadership that she then modeled for the people under her command. And I found a number of people who could speak to what it meant, not just to have 
a woman CEO in an aviation squadron, but that particular woman and just how that shifted the culture dramatically. And then toward the end of the book, how those pioneers, you know, later in their careers after, you know, flying in combat was not an opportunity for them. They were too old, you know, how they continued the fight for the generations coming up behind them so that women could fly, you know, the most sophisticated jets and could complete combat missions and could compete on an equal footing, you know, with the best pilots as best they could to the best of their ability. And, you know, how could they, you know, become astronauts and walk in space? And in a couple of weeks, one of the flyover pilots is making her debut as the first female demo pilot for the Blue Angels. And I met her at Women in Aviation International last year, and that was just such a thrill. And, you know, women of that generation, women in their 20s now are beneficiaries from what those women started doing, you know, back in 1973. Yeah, that's a good point. And we are recording this one day after the first, I think it was the first Super Bowl flyover. That was one of my LinkedIn associates that's also a female fighter pilot or or former female. She said the first unmanned flyover. And and I really like that because there was no men. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that is, that is, it's awesome that the day after that happened, we are talking about this. And I, you know, of course these women, they, they blaze a, a trail for, the the young aviators of today and and I did you know highlight one of the quotes and I I forget which who said this but she said because of rosemary I'm a pilot first a person second and gender isn't really an issue now of course not all of these problems are fixed as you said Bev but I do know I, I mean I've interviewed women on this show that have flown in combat and so you know Kim Kim Casey Campbell is one of them that she's flown in combat that the women that blazes trail were not able to do that. That was still a combat exclusion, but I have to think that what they did was, was a big driver in, and folks like Kim Campbell being able to defend, you know, and fight for her country. So what, I don't know, to me, that's, that's where it's at. That's, that's why we do these things. Hopefully these hard things is, to make a better future for the people coming behind us. Right. You know, another lesson I took from this was that the answer might be no, but there might be another way to go about it. So, you know, Rosemary Mariner had every qualification to fly jets in combat, and she wasn't allowed, but she was in charge of a, a squadron that taught men how to fight in combat against MiGs. They impersonated MiGs and had all the uh, the gizmos and the tricks in their aircraft to teach the guys how to stay alive when they were in actual combat. So, you know, she could demonstrate those skills and that kind of tactical thinking, even though, you know, in the real life situation, she wasn't allowed to do that. But when yeah, could again. Do it. Yeah. Amazing. She could prove, you know, she's actually acting as, it sounds like she was acting as an adversary to train these pilots and, and, and doing it well, I would imagine. And, and yet, because culture doesn't change quickly, we had people that, you know, didn't see that, Hey, if they're doing this, then it's a pretty easy, you know, connect the dots to say they could do this in, in real life. Right. But again, again, especially in the military, which is is a fairly traditional 
organization. Change happens, you know, slowly. And, and, but here we are. And again, plenty of women that have been on this podcast that, that have gone out there and done that. I just recently did a, a podcast with the, one of the first female Rangers. And we agreed that when, when men stand up for our sisters, that makes a big difference. And so that commanding officer that you talked about, they had allies like that. Now, of course, they had some people that, that didn't want to see them there and were doing everything they could to get in their way. But they also had some, some people working for them, which I think is important. You know, here's a quote that another quote that I took from the book that, that kind of hammers on this. You know, going back to if you're old enough to remember the tailhook scandal, and if you're not, it basically it was a it was kind of a, a mess of a sexual harassment scandal in the Navy. And this is what Rosemary said about that after the fact. Sexual harassment will continue to be a problem in the military services as long as women are barred from combat duty, as long as we are considered institutionally inferior, just as matters of race, separate is inherently unequal. When we look at two people that are separate, there, there's almost automatically there's going to be a, some harassment. There's going to be some discrimination. Is that just human nature? Unfortunately, I think to some degree it is the us versus them. You know, the my tribe versus your tribe is very strong. In the case of women in the 80s and 90s, you know, there was a definite sense that the women were not sharing the risks. They were not pulling their weight. They were not doing their fair share. And the women absolutely agreed with that. You know, the six women in, in my book, they wanted all the opportunities. They couldn't take advantage of them. And they, you know, they caught hell for it. You know, they, they totally agreed. You know, they were not, you know, trying to do a carrier landings at night because they weren't allowed to. And to equalize, you know, those opportunities takes some of that us versus them away. It's it's an, it's an easy out. It's an easy way to to victimize somebody. So that's gone. Unfortunately, harassment continues. You know, the combat exclusion was not the end of the discussion, unfortunately. You know, there was an, an incident at Fort Hood, I think two years ago, where an enlisted woman complained of harassment by a superior officer. The CEO basically didn't do anything. She ended up dead, and the Pentagon investigation blamed a, you know, a lack of leadership, which is exactly what the Pentagon investigation is a tailhook. So, you know, these things unfortunately seem to cycle back and repeat themselves. And, you know, there, there are no easy, no easy answers any more than, you know, there's an easy answer to, well, why aren't there more women in the military? You know, and just having a preponderance, you know, a critical mass of women would certainly, you know, change that equation. But, you know, why doesn't that happen? You know, people much smarter than me haven't been able to figure it out. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, this may sound dismal, but I think some of it is, is always going to be there. But, you know, going back to when you look at somebody as being inferior, when you look at somebody as being less than, it's much easier to harass, to bully, to, you know, treat them, you know, of course, unequal. And so I think that's kind of what I, I was when I read that quote, that's what I was seeing. As long as you have that that unequal status, you're going to see this kind of stuff, whether it's and again, whether it's gender or race or something else. So I think that's leveling, even though I'm not crazy about the term, but leveling that playing field mm -hmm. um, that I think that's important. 
Yeah, there was an interesting, I thought, an interesting development last year where the FAA changed a lot of the language in its official communications. And they've, you know, taken a lot of ridicule for it. It's not a notice to air men anymore. It's a notice to air mission. But the impetus for this came from the drone industry, you know, corporate America, because they felt they were not getting all the best applicants because of the language that's used, sends a message as to who is desirable, who is included, and who is excluded. And they said, can you take the gendered language out? And the FAA agreed. You know, it's always rankled me a little bit that, you know, I'm called an airman. I'm not a man. <laughs> so, you know, call me an aviator. You know, does it have to be gendered? It was just, you know, the way it's been done forever. But that's, you know, kind of a culture shift that, you know, may, may bear some fruit you know, down the road. That's a good point. You know, the language we use and it, a lot of it's very biased. And it, the funny thing is I've been kind of keeping up on artificial intelligence and, and that new thing out there, chat GPT. I don't know if you're familiar, mm -hmm. but oh yes, they're seeing that there's a lot of gender bias in the language that AI is using. And does that surprise us? It shouldn't because where is it learning that? It's learning that from our culture. And, and you're right. There's so many things in, in our language that talks about the man, right? And so going to something general neutral, I think, is a good start. And, you know, the idea of do we have to, and I do it, but, but I'm trying to stop myself from doing it, but do we have to say female aviator? I've said it already on this podcast, but as, as long as we're always doing that, I mean, I never say male aviator, do I? So... I fall into that trap and it's a hard thing to do. Although I think part of it is for me personally, is I want to highlight this idea that these are female aviators and in my, in my mind, they deserve some, some special, I don't know, some special notice. And that's why part of the reason why I do it, but I think that where we want to go, I mean, where do we want to go in the future? I think we want to get to that point where we even have to say that, right? You're an aviator. Right. Right. You're not male, Absolutely. you're not female, you're just an aviator. And every other job that, you know, that, that's out there that is more male-dominated, you know. I work in engineering, or I used to work in engineering. Very male-dominated field as well. Yeah, I mean, that that certainly is, certainly is the goal, where it's just, it's completely unexceptional. That it yep. doesn't even need to be noted. But, you know, I think we're not there yet. No, we're not there, but I don't know. I, I like to have hope that we are moving closer and closer. What, you know, as you're writing this book, did anything surprise you? What did you find most remarkable about this story? Things surprised me, and they were sort of op opposite sides of the coin, I guess. One was, I mean, how how willing some of these men were to just put all their negative feelings right out there. You know, they would put it in writing. They would just speak it. I mean, there's this was this absolutely awful article in Washingtonian magazine by James Webb, who was up for a secretary of the Navy that basically, you know, basically said women have no business being at the Naval Academy. Women have no business being in combat. Women have no business being a commander over me. And it just went on and on and on with this rash of awful stereotypes, you know, completely self-contradictory. But just the idea that he would put that out there and felt comfortable enough putting all that out there was absolutely amazing to me. You know, it's not like, you know, locker room talk. This is out, you know, way out in, a pub, in public, in print. That really surprised me. Another thing that surprised me was how open 
these women were in talking about some of these absolutely horrific things that had happened to them. You know, it's their story. They were not going to be cowed. They were going to tell it like it happened. And that was, I mean, it's just so, so brave. I was just, just astonished. One other thing, I guess, is how modest they, they were about what they had done. I mean, a number of them, you know, in the first six and a couple of generations after, I mean, they knew they had done something extraordinary. They knew they had a story to tell. They had personal archives. They saved every last piece of paper, every last piece of memorabilia, but they never talked about it. They didn't make a big deal out of it. I happened to come along and it was like, hey, come to my house and see my archive because, you know, I've been saving this stuff for 40 years, but, you know, they... It never, they never really, you know, were tooting their own horn about it. You know, it was just something they did. They were proud of what they had done. Now it's over and they moved on. And I was just blown away by just how, I mean, the, their strength and their courage and, you know, how humble they were about, about their achievements. Yeah, I picked up on that too, that, you know, here we are, we're talking about, and quite honestly, we're talking about trailblazers in history. And I got the sense that they were just, they just were out there doing their thing. They didn't really look at it as being that monumental, even though they had to know that in the back of their minds, they were just out there trying to fit in and, and do their thing and do their job. Right? right. And I, and I hear that a lot from modern aviators that they, they say the same thing. I'm just, I'm just going out there trying to do my job and just like the, the, the person next to me, but you know, I don't know what's the lesson we can we can take from that. I think there's a lot of people that, you know, to change culture, to change the world, perhaps it maybe doesn't need to be as grandiose as we think it is. Just go out there and do your do your job, and one day they'll write a book about you. Right, right. Model model the behavior you want to see. I mean, it's it's an interesting sort of like a split personality in the way the Navy approached it, though, because. You know, they wanted to just integrate and we were just going to have them come in and do their work. But then the Navy wanted to milk the publicity for all they possibly could. It didn't matter if the CEOs didn't want the women there and some of them didn't. You know, we're going to call the photographers and, you know, yeah, yeah. come see. I mean, when when Jane O'Day was became the first woman to fly the C-130 Hercules, the Air Force flew the C-130. There were no Air Force women flying. So women didn't fly the C-130. And the Air Force really didn't want a Navy woman flying the C-130, but they figured out that they could get all the reporters to come watch her for her first solo and they couldn't buy that kind of publicity. So it was, it was really kind of this, you know, this kind of two-sided approach to it. You know, on the other hand, they one hand, they didn't want them there, but on the other hand, yeah, you yeah. know what? There's really some benefit to having them around. No kidding. I, I don't know what to make of that, right? I I get what you're saying. We don't want you here, but now that you're here, let's see if we can drum up some good, positive, I don't know, public relations. And I mean, they put and these women, they had to go on TV, they had to do interviews, they had these photographers all over the place, and then here, go buckle down and do all the ground school and do all the flight training, you know, without a lot of the mentorship that the men had. I've heard of things like, you know, a lot of times they wouldn't get the best instructor pilots. You know, a lot of things were stacked against them. They had to do that extra work. They were scrutinized more heavily. You know, their mistakes were going to be magnified. And so that's a lot of pressure to carry around. And I know, again, because from what I've read, they were humble. But I don't know. 
to me, I'm like, wow, they, they deserve extra credit for all the stuff they had to kind of navigate to continue to do their job the right way. All right. Bev, I think you're going to give us a little treat and, and read a little bit from the book. Why don't you go ahead? Okay. So let me give you an excerpt from Chapter 7, Owens v. Brown. For two glorious days in 1974, Interior Communications electrician second class Yona Owens was a full-fledged member of the crew of the survey ship USNS Michelson. No men in her specialty were available, and orders approving her for sea duty on the non-combat vessel were signed and sealed, until they were rescinded by the Judge Advocate General as a violation of federal law. Under Section 6015, Navy women were not allowed to serve on ships, though civilian scientists and technicians and Army and Air Force women were all permitted to travel and work on board. Frustrated at the restrictions that stymied her career, Owens had begun networking. A letter she published in Navy Times offering to share research on women's rights yielded 312 requests for help. Yeoman Suzanne Holtman was a staffer in a new personnel office for enlisted women. The two connected, and with two other enlisted women, aided by the American Civil Liberties Union and the League of Women Voters Educational Fund, they decided to file a class action lawsuit against the federal government charging discrimination on behalf of 21,870 Navy women. The defendants, Secretary of Defense Harold Brown and Secretary of the Navy W. Graham Claytor. At the same time, Lieutenant Joellen Drag was chafing under the limits Section 6015 placed on her ability to do her job. She wasn't allowed to hover her helicopter over a ship. Civilian women could go on ships, but she couldn't fly them there. There were always mechanical problems with the blades on the CH-46 Sea Knight helicopter, so much of the fleet was frequently grounded. This made it difficult for her to log hours and meet other qualifications to advance, even in shore-based billets. Joellen wasn't the only officer at San Diego who thought it was time to bring the rules up to date. While she was pursuing administrative remedies and writing letters up the chain of command, others were also questioning why Section 6015 still existed. Among these was Lieutenant Suzanne Riddlehoover, who was studying at night to become a lawyer. Also, Lieutenant Commander Kathleen Byerly, a women's officer's school graduate and, coincidentally, one of Time Magazine's 12 Women of the Year in January 1976, along with former First Lady Betty Ford and tennis superstar Billie Jean King. The three officers asked Riddle Hoover's constitutional law professor for help. And in researching Section 6015, they discovered the class action lawsuit already in the works. With her previous requests denied and her career stalling, Joellen sent one more letter, assisted by her JAG attorney at her wing, and endorsed by her commanding officer. The letter went up the chain of command and vanished. Joellen says she suspects one of the Navy brass was dead set against the idea of female military pilots and that another, scarred by his experiences in Vietnam, couldn't square those horrific memories with the idea of women as prisoners of war. So the three female officers joined the four enlisted women in pursuing the only remaining course of action, a judicial appeal. Joellen did not have to testify and life went on as usual. Most of the men in her squadron didn't even know there was a lawsuit, let alone that she was a named plaintiff. But on July 27, 1978, Judge John Sirica, who had presided over trials stemming from the Watergate scandal, ruled Section 6015 unconstitutional, and he addressed Joellen specifically by name. 
the Navy saw there was no argument left and declined to appeal. Three months later, the Defense Authorization Bill amended Section 6015, leaving severe limitations in place, but it redefined the role of female aviators and allowed them for the first time to land on ships at sea. For the first time in Joellen Drag's career and in Navy history, a female helo pilot would be assigned to duty aboard a U.S. Navy ship. That ship was the Vancouver, and the assignment was a six-day military exercise 300 miles off the California coast. Flying out and landing, the only woman within miles, Joellen was tasked with retrieving remote-controlled drones launched from the ships in the exercise. Measuring eight to 10 feet long and looking like miniature orange airplanes, the drones simulated enemy aircraft for ships and planes to shoot at. Eventually, they would ditch in the ocean and the helos would fly over to retrieve them one at a time. A crew member sitting in the doorway, dangling 10 feet above the ocean, would snag the drone with a long pole and then attach it to a cargo hook in the floor. There were dangers. If the drone was at the wrong angle of attack, it could start flying on its own under the helo and cause serious damage. A chopper that hovered too low could suck ocean water spray into the engine intakes, collect salt on the turbines, and stall. That's what happened to the second helo in the exercise. The crew couldn't restart the engine, and the chopper flipped over in the sea. Joellen flew over to rescue the second helo's five crew members and return them to the ship. After recovering the rest of the targets and landing again, she wandered towards sickbay to see if the other crew was all right. Suddenly, a sailor jumped out, saluted, and said, Ayo, you an apology, ma'am. The sailors had been on the signal bridge when the Gila went in the water, and they'd all bet that she was the pilot who'd been flying. They'd let the woman touch the controls, and she crashed. For the next three or four days, with the second Gila crew grounded until the accident investigation was over, she and the other remaining male pilot had to do all the flying. More than once, hovering near the ship, Joellen caught sailors taking pictures of the Lady Hilo pilot recovering targets. Well, oh, cool. I mean, I hear tenacity in there, you know, sending one more letter, getting shut down again, and then, you know, just keeping at it. And then, quite honestly, I got to give a little credit to the sailor that came up and apologized because he easily <laughs> could have kept that to himself, right? And, so, and, mm-hmm. and not... And not said, hey, I, I thought for sure it was you. Uh, I love it. I love it. Great story. Yeah. I thank you for sharing that. Well, I'm, I, you know, as we start to wrap this up, I, I got to say that I am really happy, number one, that you wrote this book, that you, you know, document. I mean, this, this is a historical book. I do hope that listeners go out and check this out, especially if you're, you know, interested in female leadership, if you're interested in history, if you're interested in naval aviation, any of those things, or all of the above, I think this would be a wonderful book for you to go out and read. And please, you know, share this message with the younger generation. Remember, you know, these women that went, that that blazed this path so that we could kind of get to where we are today. So with that being said, Bev, what, do you have any other books in the works? You know, you said this is your first book. Did, did you um, get the bug? Do you get the bug now? I did get the bug. There is a story that's that's hinted at in this book that I've started trying to chase down involving a group of waves in World War II. I think it's not going to be nearly as easy in the research as this one. It's going to take a lot of legwork. I just don't know if there's enough information out there to make the story go. So you are so is it accurate to say you're in the research mode right now, trying to figure out do I have a story here? 
I'm somewhat in research mode. I mean, there's definitely a story. The question is, is it accessible? And I just, I just don't know yet. I've also had to learn how to be a book publicist over the last year. I didn't realize that's part of the job when you write a book, but it is. So I'm, you know, all over social media trying to to promote the book. You know, we've done a number of signings. We did the circuit last summer. We were at the 99s conference and women in aviation and then out at Oshkosh, which was amazing. We're going out to the Blue Angels debut at El Centro, California in a couple of weeks. Standing. So that will be... That will be such fun. And we're doing a signing on the Midway. So anybody going to be in San Diego the first weekend in March, you know, come by and see us. I'll be there with Joelle, Joelle and Oslin, retired Captain Joelle and Oslin, who's the first female helo pilot. That's great. That, that was going to be my next question. You know, not only do you have another book in the works, but what's going on with, with promoting this one? And you're right. I'm shopping my manuscript of my first book right now. And uh, everybody, yeah, everybody's telling me, thank you. Everybody's telling me, you're going to have to do a lot of legwork to promote your book. And I'm like, okay, I'm I'm starting to get my mind wrapped around this idea that a lot of that's going to fall on me and and every author. Yeah, I found it helps to have some very young colleagues who will handle your Instagram and TikTok for you. (laughs) Yeah, I don't even want to talk about social media. I, I, I would, I just want to not deal with social media, but yeah. I'm, I'm told that I've I've got to. So excellent. So the Midway, gosh, so many good things there. I mean, if you're a pilot and you're listening to this, Oshkosh, the Midway, if you've never been to the Midway, that's really cool out in San Diego. So what a great place to do a book signing. So that's wonderful. Glad to hear that you're, you're out there promoting the book. We always like to do a, a hard question, Bev, for all of our guests on the Forging Metal podcast. If you are open to sharing, what is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? I'm not sure that it's a failure necessarily, but it's something that was really pointed out to me in researching the book and meeting, you know, these incredible women. I fell in love with aviation when I was eight years old. First time I flew on a commercial plane, it was like, wow, I want to do this. I told my mother when I was 13 that I wanted to learn how to fly and got that over my dead body look. I found out much later that my dad and his whole family were airplane crazy, but he didn't say anything. So that just that small amount of discouragement was was enough. You know, I didn't I didn't really pursue it. You know, I thought about, you know, maybe if I went to one of the one of the military academies, I could fly and, you know, got the same look. And that was the end of it. I didn't get my private until I was 38 years old. And, you know, a career in aviation clearly at that point wasn't going to happen. So, you know, listening to what these women had gone through and how they pushed through all that resistance and all that negativity and the constant refrain of no. And I was looking back and saying, wow, I caved really easily. And, you know, I wish I hadn't. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, Let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.